Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I chat with comedian Conchetta Caristo. Conchetta talks about getting into comedy and her teenage years of domestic violence where she went to a woman's refuge for a couple of months to escape and then fled to Perth. Then later on, Lifeguard Whippet joins me in the shack for Beach Banner and I go to the mailbag to answer questions from the fans. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Conchetta. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Conchetta Caristo, uh, who is a comedian. And But there is a background story on, on uh, how we met years ago, so welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hoppo. I'm so excited. This is truly a career highlight for me. We'll, we'll touch on your, uh, your life and, and what you're doing now as a comedian, but we'll start back and go way back, mm-hmm. which I didn't realise until we, uh, we did a little sort of gig together a while ago. But... Uh, I think it was Maxie and I came to your school at yeah. Santa Sabina College. Do you remember the, the school? Oh, I remember that. I remember uh, <laughs> Maxie and I did a lot around that yeah. period. And that's, well, what, we're probably going back, what, eight, ten years yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe 2009, 2010 possibly. Yeah. I'm still trying to pin down the exact year, but I'll remember it like it was yesterday because I remember yeah. getting Maxie's signature and I remember he did it with two eyes. It was like really yeah, yeah, cool yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a scrap of paper and I think I still have it somewhere. It must be that, so thin. That was probably the school when uh, there, there was a whole lot of girls and that there. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, they're all yelling out to Maxie and I sort of tapped him on the <laughs> I tapped him on the shoulder and said, mate, so the old bloke still got it. And <laughs> the problem was that it wasn't really. They were all yelling for Maxie. All you oh, girls yeah. were yelling for Maxie <laughs> because it sort of hit home when I think the – uh, some of the girls came up and said, my mum loves you. And that, <laughs> that put into perspective where I was at. <laughs> if the mums were here, they would be screaming for you, Hoppa. But you were with a bunch of high school, middle school girls who were obsessed with the little blonde guy. <laughs> so how was that? Can you remember back when we turned up? I think we were doing some surf safety talk. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Girls, and what was that like? So I am pretty sure I remember Santa Fest was a, um, a thing where it was fundraising for or like whatever the charity was and um you would try and get special guests and right. i remember there was like we once like and to pull guests as a school i don't know who's doing it but like it would have been so interesting to see who you can pull and i remember at, at the time there were the stars of like maybe like not so you think you can dance but remember those like talent shows like yep. those little dance probably, groups um yeah was it idol idol was yeah that idol time? might Australian have been idol happening and a few of those yeah. a few of those kind of people and then obviously the bondi rescue boys i mean you were huge you're still huge i think that would have been like a huge get for the school everyone <laughs> knows who you guys are and it was just like so just would have been mania and that's yep. what i'm trying to see i'm still trying to find if they're is a photo of you with any of the school leaders. If even I'm in a photo, that would be like worth a million dollars. So I've got to look through my old school yearbooks and hopefully find um, that amazing piece in time. 
I'm glad you put that million dollars on this. Any anyone out there's got a photo of me, we could be worth a million. <laughs> That's right. Imagine it's signed. I mean, then it's purely priceless. <laughs> well, then from there you left school, and then uh, you obviously went through a, a period where you went to uni. But mm. tell us about that. You so hated uni. Oh my god, yes. So I think I loved school, Hopper. Like I loved it because I loved being I was always like a school leader I loved being with people I loved making them laugh I loved making school fun and then I remember towards the HSC years the fun really dropped off yeah. it became a lot more pressure both from like kind of the school and definitely my my parents and that whole culture of like needing to just study 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 and it sort of like broke me and what we'll like obviously get into but my dad was kind of violent and like a very strict kind of controlling father and so my life pretty much was shaped by him. And then in terms of going to uni, which is like, you know, you go to uni, yeah, there's yeah. no option. There's yeah. no like gap year. There's no like doing anything else. So in terms of picking what I was going to do at uni, it was always going to be like business skewed. I didn't get yeah. high enough to do law. That wasn't yeah. happening. Yeah. But like, what's the next kind of proper thing to do with something in business? And so I remember with my ITA, like, the highest thing I could do is economics. Yep. And God, I couldn't tell you how little I knew or cared. I didn't study <laughs> economics at school. I mean, I did commerce in U10. And then I went to uni at UCID and I remember like it quickly dropping off and, you know, just not finding it interesting and not really learning and not really putting in the time to study and like kind of crumbling under the pressure but not really showing it. I yeah. couldn't like tell my dad like I hate this, like yeah. I want to do something else. There was just really no option. So I spent yeah. a lot of uni hoppo um playing pool with friends <laughs> and like making <laughs> friends and like eventually skipping classes and stuff. Yeah. And then yeah, that was well, that must have played a toll on your mental health though because you, yeah. you you sort of didn't want to do it but because of your father pushing for that. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that because a lot of people that listen would be in the same boat, especially a lot of mm. young people like yourself yeah. that don't know how to handle it, don't know how to deal with it, mm -hmm. and now you've been through it. Give us a little bit of an insight on, on how you felt and then how yeah. you sort of dealt with that. Totally. I feel like it's a very relatable thing for ethnic kids, for yeah. people who grow up, like my background's Italian, and just in the culture of that was – doing what your parents said. I just remember like comparing myself to like the really Aussie kids. Yep. And it was just like, the, it, it felt like they had more freedoms and like, it yep. felt very different. I was like, oh, I have to do kind of what my family wants me to do. I really yep. do not have an option. There's no one higher than my family. Yep. I still, the other day I ran into my old drama teacher. Again, we're talking like 10 years ago. Yep. And I said to him, do you remember when we sat in my parent teacher interview and you were like saying how great I was at drama and I'm so yep. funny and I absolutely must pick drama for years 11 and 12. And my father sat there and was like, there's no way yep. Conchetta is picking drama yep. for her HSC. Do you know how that scales? Like what, how, what, how is she going to get into uni with drama? And he just like shat all over him. And he was like, <laughs> yeah, I absolutely remember that. But yeah, in terms of mental health, it was like, oh, it sucked because it felt like you truly do not have any autonomy kind of over what you want to do yeah. and what you like and that isn't really validated. Mm. But as a kid, again, like there's no one higher than my father, than my parents, so I just thought I just have to make this work. Yeah. I just thought that that's what my life would be. I would just have to kind of 
mold myself to do these things and and so that is hard and it was clearly not working if I wasn't yeah. I was lying to my father being like yeah I learned um this about economics when I was still in week one of yeah. like supply and demand that's yeah, all yeah, I yeah. knew <laughs> um and so I think now through everything that I've been through coming out of it to me there's I feel I really um empathize with people who have to like grow up and and have to live life through that but to me there's there has to be the choice of like living for yourself. Yeah. I, I know it can be so hard because your family is everything. There's such a big culture and like yeah. I think families of like not letting your family down. But to me, like if I had to just be something that I wasn't meant to be, like I could, I just can't do that. Yeah. It just doesn't fulfill you. And it. I hope there's a way that's less dramatic as me of like yeah. having to run away and all this stuff yeah. we'll get into of getting to be your authentic self and also being honest with your parents about that kind of stuff. But it's hard. All yeah. I can say is that it's very hard. Yeah. So there must have been then came a breaking point. And, yeah. and you, you know, you were saying that uh, your mum and your sister and that did go and get away mm -hmm. and get a ref, uh, refuge. Refuge, yeah. So yeah. Tell us. From, yeah. So that was the breaking point. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so just growing up in that household, like both a loving father but also – I, uh, you know, and all my needs were met. We're like a middle-class family. There's mm. no way I'm like stricken by poverty or any of those other horrible things that can sometimes yeah. go in hand in hand with domestic violence. It was having all of that, like I'm at a good school, whatever, but the undercurrent is I'm like living under this like yeah. crazy controlling rule. But again, I never thought, I just thought that's how my life is going to be forever. And I've since learned now that it's not because I was like stupid that mm. I was like, there's no one above my dad. I've learned that that's, a real thing called coercive control, which is like what goes along with domestic violence is the like the talk that goes along with it, how they mold you since I was a mm. kid to be like, this is it. You don't tell anyone. There's no one higher than me. So, of course, that's just what I thought. And the actual catalyst for what we did get out was my sister. My younger sister is four years younger than me. She was like, I don't know, in year nine or something, maybe even younger. She had like packed her bag one day going to school like as if she wasn't going to come back, like right. she was going to run away. And I think my mum maybe pressed her or something, dropping her off at school, and she broke down and was like, I can't do this anymore. Mm. I was going to run away. I, c I can't live like this anymore. Yeah. And for mum, that was like, oh, my God, if I'm going to lose my daughter, then yeah. we need to do something now. Mm. And so then very quickly after that, they, like, pitched it to me. <laughs> they were like, hey, <laughs> We are thinking, what if we got out of here? Yeah. And I remember that like blew the lid off my entire life. Right. I was like, I didn't even know that was possible. Wow. But if you're saying let's do it, let's fucking do <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and so, so ultimately, like, as you said, like I'm failing uni, but I'm pretending that I'm not. I'm like forging my I had no like and I remember final exams were coming up Papo, and I have no idea how I would have gotten through that but this came just at the right time that for us to leave yeah. I could leave all of that yeah. but I'm just yeah. telling you we were yeah. it would be like heading towards the Titanic yeah. like clearly I was losing the reins on propping up this life of living so, for someone else so it was like a you basically were living a fake life a over fake here absolute life <laughs> yeah to what yeah you know, people actually Probably yeah. thought the fake life was mm -hmm. you, but it really wasn't. No, yeah. absolutely. Like I'm lying to everyone that I'm like normal, happy, fine and can handle doing this degree and everything. And so I just remember being so relieved knowing that I could just leave 
and because I didn't know how to face my dad and all that stuff of mm. everything really crashing down on me. So then, yeah, it took uh, months of planning, meticulous. Like yeah. mum was speaking to, mum called a DV hotline. I think yeah. it was 1-800-RESPECT and was put in touch with someone who like got to understand the sort of severity of this yeah. DV situation because we're talking like 20 years, yeah. like just like our whole lives. Sometimes, you know, it can be quite short periods or like on and off, on and off. This was just consistent for a really long time. And so mum's speaking to that, being the adult and all this, and we're doing little things of like slowly packing stuff but making it not look too obvious. And then I remember on October 30th in 2013 that we left like one morning as if we were going to school, but we were packing the car and didn't look back. We had to like go to this refuge, smashed our phones, and that was the beginning of like a huge catalyst in my life. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Geez, that must have been also tough for your mum though too because, I mean, she's got two young kids mm. and then have to, to break away and, and, and do that as well and, and the, the yeah. plan up to that point. So, yeah, I, she must have been strong in, in one way yeah. but then probably quite frightened in another. Absolutely. Now with my like with a bit more age and maturity and looking back on it, I am in true awe mm. of my mum because I didn't realise – literally all the things she was juggling of juggling like running her own business with the man who is Mm. like her controller and abuser at the same time raising two young kids planning secretly how to run away and this running away took so many like just out of luck if things had happened I remember her telling me she accidentally butt dialed my dad when she was like going to the bank to like talk about bank stuff and it's just these little moments, like something out of a movie that if yeah. one little hitch happened and the day we left, it's also like something out of a movie. If one little thing didn't work, if he woke up early that morning, there's a hundred different ways this could have gone mm. where we didn't get out. Yeah. So it's like juggling all of that and being the adult in this and having to do the research. And I just am so grateful to my mom because it took And, you know, and I think when people think about, like, why didn't you leave and thinking that she's weak, I think there's a strength in that, like, it takes strength and courage to, like, get up every day and live through Mm. this. And it's kind of about survival in the same way of me. I'm like, to me, survival was having to mold into this person to fit this life, to just keep going every day with this, like, you know what I mean? You don't kind of know until you're in it, but it takes all these skills and adjustments and then yeah yeah, to go out was a whole different thing and and that's what i've noticed a a lot of stuff i've been doing recently with domestic violence and i haven't had really a lot of domestic violence in my life so Mm. i I haven't understood it as much as what i've now speaking to people about Mm -hmm. it and it it does make sense that controlling is the big thing of domestic violence it's not so much i think a lot of people that don't understand think domestic violence is just hitting someone yes but it, but it's that control of of not letting the go do things, controlling mm-hmm. the money, controlling other parts yeah. of your life, and like you're saying, your whole life was totally controlled. Yeah, and you became a total different person. Yeah, and you don't understand the reason it's even more sinister than just the violence is because we're talking about control from people you love. This mm. is my father. Yeah, like yeah. this is someone who not only is the person that's like hurting me and I can't understand why, but also the person who is loving me and nurturing me. And that's why I think I think people have this idea of domestic violence is that it's so simple of like yep. once someone hits you once, they're an evil villain yep. and all you have to do is walk out the yep. door and it's like, fine, that will never happen to me. It's not that. We're yep. talking about complex like relationships of a, either a partner you love, someone you've grown up with, a parent, a mm. carer, a sibling. Like you, 
it's never simple. Mm. It's never simple. It's entirely complex. And the control part, the coercive control is the thing that we kind of need more awareness about of that it's little things that build and build and build into a person's like psyche and yeah. how like I'm still unpacking what that did yeah. of living like that now for the rest of my yeah, life. Yeah. Like it just shapes who you are. So that's like yeah. a great point of being yeah. like, it's not simply just being hit. That's right. It's so much more than that. Yeah. So you did, you then made that move. You went yeah. to a refuge. Yeah. Obviously, then your dad f- would have found out what was going oh, on. Oh yeah. I can't imagine that was too good. <laughs> oh my god, no! It was horror. And we were talking about it recently because I told you I'm writing yep. this show coming up in a month, and I got my mum and sister together and was like asking them, "Do you remember that day?" And as we're reliving it and talking about it, the guilt, the anxiety, the stress is like coming up in okay. us, remembering those that day of just how scary it was and even just we were saying if I picture my father waking up one day Mm. noticing things are a bit off going into work mum's car's there but mum's not there just if I think about the dominoes falling I feel sick like not just guilt but I'm like like that's huge just for your whole life to just change so vastly and I remember by the time we're at the refuge we started to get calls on our phones and I think I remember that's when we were like, we need to smash our phones. We can't think about this. And so we did. We smashed our phones (laughs) just to like not think about it. But um, yeah, it was quite crazy because it felt like we were a million miles away, but we weren't. We were actually quite close. So like I grew up in Strathfield and then the refuge we were in is Glebe or like Redfern, Glebe kind of area. Not far away. Not that far away, but it felt like. Where it could have it, been another state. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But then also we had to live these months like we couldn't really go out because, you know, we right. have grown up here our yeah. whole lives. What if we run into someone yeah, yeah, and all yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff? So it was a weird – it was like living in limbo, my right. sister said, for those yeah. months in the refuge. Yeah. And then you did – you ended up fleeing – you fled uh, New South Wales yeah. and then headed over to Perth. Over to Perth, yeah. to sunny Perth. Yeah. I remember those months in the refuge were used – I guess, to like, you know, get things ready to then make the permanent move. And I remember mum picked Perth. It kind of was beautiful because it was like, it felt like the furthest point you could go from Sydney kind of. And also my mum would talk about her father, who is an Italian immigrant, of him moving from like Northern Italy to and working in Perth and just telling these like stories of how like sunny and beautiful and hot and dry it was. And so I remember like, that was the plan. And so then we got all the stuff ready. Again, mum juggling this stuff. I still, like to all her credit, so strong and brave and just doing this alone. And then we made the move in January 2014. We flew over. I had a legally new name. My mum had a legally new name. My sister was too young to legally change it, but she became Jessica from Francesca. Quick little change so she wouldn't forget. (laughs) She kept it quite close to her original name, whereas I did a whole rebrand. I went from Conchetta to Siena. It was my favourite name. And then, yeah, then started what we thought would be the rest of our lives, like living as a different the same but different people. Yeah, yeah. So did the refuge have anything to do with where you're going to go or was basically up to your mum? No, it was and- like it was like a mum's autonomous right. choice and they were just I think there to like support her in right. um, in what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. In letting her know about services and like all those kind of things. So from there, you know, you Started, even though you said you hated uni, but then you started uni again, again yeah. over in Perth. <laughs> yeah, over in Perth. I guess I just thought, like, 
uni is what you do when you finish school. You just go to uni. And I thought maybe that's the problem. I wasn't doing the right thing. Do and you I, think that was your, your, your dad's control still, still maybe, there? Maybe, a little bit maybe. I think it, it would have just been like the thing of maybe just the upbringing yeah. of like outside of the father, like wider family, that's what you do. Yeah, Everyone yeah. goes to uni. My mum went to uni. Yeah. Like even mum would have like wanted me to go to yeah, uni yeah, just yeah. to be educated and it's yeah. not like that wild to go to uni. Yeah, so yeah. I thought maybe I'll just do something different. Yeah. And I remember picking law and journalism and um, being like, here we go. This time I'm going to get it right. Yeah, yeah. And I think I liked the journalism part and the law part was like interesting, okay, but like a lot. And um, same thing, I think there was still the studying at uni was a bit like hated it a little yeah, bit, which, yeah. but I think was like still trying to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, well, how then did the comedy come about? Was there Great something question. that triggered you or, or <laughs> yeah. what happened there? That's so true. Um, well, it was actually kind of a slow, slow burn. So it's, I don't know, I think growing up I just remember – loving making people laugh. That's right. the only thing I remember. It wasn't like I grew up obsessing over stand-up comedy and watching specials. It was just like I was always the funny one in the class. Mm. If we had to make an assignment, I was trying to make it funny just because I enjoyed that. And I remember when I was going for school captain, the reason I thought school captain was so cool is because they were the last few captains were always funny. Right. Like they were always doing funny speeches and making funny videos. And I was like, that's the ultimate. Yeah. Like, so it wasn't like I'm going to be a comedian. It was just like, why do I like doing that being funny? Yeah. And so in Perth, I remember just like watching a lot of Seinfeld and crying and yeah. being like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Like to be in a show that makes people laugh. And also I'm watching the bloopers of them laughing and I'm like, yeah. this is what life's about <laughs> to me, but not really registering. And so then, the closest thing I did was just enrolling in a Whopper short acting course. Right. Um, and it was like half screen and half like theater stage stuff. And even that I wasn't like going off. I wasn't like obsessed being like, this is my calling. I was so bad at acting. Hopper. I was yeah. truly terrible, but it was well, good. We'll, we'll touch on my acting soon. Oh, that's please. Not, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as everyone will know, that's probably why I'm still a lifeguard. But, uh, yeah, so, you could still have your breakout role. <laughs> you and the Hemsworths. I can see it. <laughs> so from uh, so you, you started doing a yeah. bit of uh, – yeah. Just trying, like, acting, like, what having the freedom to try do something was cool. But then it wasn't until, you know, when P Perth, living that life kind of fell apart and I moved back to Sydney and was re-adjusting to coming back after, like, running away and hiding yeah. was I did, yes, my third uni degree, go off Queen. She tried three different times. <laughs> and this one was, like, the most drama-based. It was, like arts and business and I was doing a theatre degree right. and remember hating the theatre degree being like I don't want to be Meryl Street. like I'm in this class and I'm like doing blah blah and I don't care and there was a really funny guy in my class called Lyndon and I remember he was like he must have noticed I was funny we hope and he said <laughs> you should come there's theatre sports at Sydney Uni yeah. it's really fun just come to a jam yeah. And then because he was so funny and I trusted him I, and he was doing it, I went over to Sydney Uni, tried a couple jams, and that is what I think was the start right. of like leading into being a comedy ha-ha yeah, yeah, kind of yeah, girl. Yeah. Well, that sort of um, – then, then it was 
improv as well that, yeah, that, that yeah, you improv. started doing? And I suppose maybe explain to people that mm. don't maybe understand what improv is. Right. Yeah, improv's great. And I was going to say, and you were great at it, Hopper, so maybe <laughs> you should start doing it too, which we'll get to the show we did. But improv, if you don't know what it is, is it's like impromptu kind of comedy. It's building the skill of making stuff up on the fly and it's generally with other people, but you can like do it alone. And everyone kind of knows the quintessential yes and phrase, which is just about like, if someone's like, I'm a lifeguard, I'm like, oh my God, me too. And like just building a world. So it's a little bit of acting and it's generally making scenes that are funny and um, yeah, and I loved it. And it's a really great thing because it, a lot of people who don't even want to do comedy for the rest of their lives do improv because it's a skill that you can use in your whole life. Yeah. People who come from like the business world will like do an improv class because it just gets you out of your own head. It gets you used to like making mistakes and not and it not meaning so much because mm. you're making it up on the fly and the stakes. And, you know, I think even if you know what stand-up comedy is, if a comedian's like, riffing which is like saying stuff just in the moment with the crowd in a little way that's improv of like mm. it's not planned it's not scripted it's not written yeah. and people sometimes like that more because they're like oh my god they're doing this right now it's just coming out of their brain mm. and a lot of improvisers are people who started improv like will ferrell amy poehler tina fey those mm. kind of people kind of start in improv and then that kind of can lead you into acting and writing and all that kind of stuff yeah. so like i'm i'm a bit of a fan of improv yeah, well then uh, I didn't know a lot about improv yeah. and then I got invited to come and do one of the yeah. shows with you guys and uh, <laughs> I was quite, uh, for people listening, it was well and truly out of my comfort zone. Yeah. I didn't know really what to expect and um, I just turned up and, and said a few questions and then you guys just ran with it. <laughs> yeah, so you were a guest <laughs> on these shows that were called Improv Torrent and all it was was they were being live streamed on Twitch, which is like that big thing, you can watch stuff online. And the guest comes and like like a host will like ask you about some stories and you tell a story that's funny and great about your life or being a lifeguard and you were so funny. And then all <laughs> the improvisers do is like we listen to you and then that kind of inspires scenes or like if you mentioned a dog at the beach, we might do a scene of like a, a different dog yeah, or a yeah. different or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you were so great and you even like got a little bit in – the improv and it was so fun and then we met again and I was like you will never remember this but I met you when I was still in school <laughs> yeah that's when that's what you said yeah you said oh I met you at school and then <laughs> came, that story came out and then yeah suddenly we're doing uh this show as well oh my god was, we're gonna be friends forever Hoppo, <laughs> I'm pretty sure <laughs> it was uh, mate, it was great I really enjoyed it it was something yeah. that um I hadn't done before which was was really yeah. good and and you guys were fantastic in, in how you just replay, you know, just came yeah. up with stuff so quick. That's the part I suppose was amazing to me and mm. on how quick you just – and you'd be going down one path and someone else will jump in and take it totally in to a different, different way, yeah. a different path. And yeah. I found it – and it was quite funny as well. Yeah, it was, it was it's supposed funny. to be funny. Yeah. It's supposed to like people with quick wit and yeah. like having like different ideas and just like going with the flow. Yeah. You know, you have to both – like have control and let go of having control and I love it for like the collaborative nature of you get to make other people look good and they make you look good and just like oh my god it's so much fun yeah. I think it's really and fun. I think you had the point before there's no right and wrong either yeah, that's, that's probably it. The, whereas when I first 
was going into to do it, I thought, yeah. oh, what if I stuff something yeah. up or stuff this up? But once it got going, I realised, well, it didn't really matter what you said no. because there was no right and wrong answers. That's it. And yeah. I think that's what people like about it, kind of the freedom of it. Mm. And even if you do say something that bombs, you're you're on to the next thing yeah. and it shouldn't be something that you, like, beat yourself up yeah. over. Yeah. You just keep moving on. Yeah. And so I'm glad that you, like, liked that. No, I loved it. It was in very We're enjoyable. We're going to do it again. I might have to do another one. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've then gone to um, stand-up comedy and you've done some fundraising uh, as well. So yeah. for domestic violence? Yeah, maybe for tell the services. Yeah, so I was doing improv for a while and loving improv and um, I also got through doing that to meet stand-ups, which felt like a whole different beast yeah. of people who were – writing, writing things and going up and having thoughts and ideas and writing jokes. And I remember that being so scary. It's so mm. funny because I think people who come from the writing background and the prepared background look at improv and they're like, there's nothing scarier to them than being up on stage with nothing. Yeah. But I was from the other way around of being like, oh, you have to prepare stuff? Yeah, yeah. And if it's bad, it, you've thought about it yeah. and it seems really embarrassing? No way. <laughs> but as I kind of kept going and performing, I thought, I feel like that is something I have to try. Yeah. And I think it also leads to its own opportunities because like it's about like finding your own voice, I think. Yeah. So eventually I tried doing stand up and it was everything I thought it would be terrifying, scary, yeah. um horrible, but like I liked being on stage and I liked knowing someone said to me like when you're alone on stage, you you feel really high highs and really low lows because there's no one else but you. Yep. So I just thought that was pretty exciting. And so, I, yeah, I haven't even been doing stand-up that long, maybe like two, three years. Yeah. And as I've been doing it, there was coming like out of what I've been through and having a bit more maturity and absolutely having gone through therapy, which is, you know, sort of revolutionary, helped change my life. I started to think about like my dream for my future is obviously to – be a comedian for the rest of my life and that be my job. But also my dream is to be someone who talks about what I've been through and hopefully like allow other people to feel less alone and to bring more awareness to it because I think people are always shocked to know that yeah. about me and like yeah. for someone who's so happy and silly and stupid knowing like the horrible things I've been through and I'm like and that's a source of strength and so that's my dream. So as I started doing stand-up I thought – a dream I always had was to put on a stand-up comedy show or some sort of comedy show that raises money for uh, domestic violence support services. And so um, someone from the Full Stop Foundation got in touch with me and they're like the fundraising arm of uh, Rape and Domestic Violence Australia and they do just incredible mm. work for people affected by not just domestic violence but family and sexual violence. They have like helplines with like trained psychologists and like counselors ready all the time and they do all this great work and I thought about it like just because I had come out of a DV situation I still had no idea about what services are out there right. how people are being helped that all the ways you can help and so by getting to know Alexia she's like the fundraising person there we got talking and I was like let's do this show and so I just did the first one it was called I'm Brave and Beautiful and I had all the funniest, best comedians I know coming to perform and all the ticket sales and like people making extra donations went to the Full Stop Foundation, which was very like nourishing and so exciting to me and something I just want to keep doing and making it bigger and better. Yeah, well, that's really, really good. And uh, so now you are um, got your own show as well. You're 
Yeah. You're about to do. So yeah. At, um, Bondi Festival, which I thought, yeah. how time? You got to bring the Bondi boys. They yeah. got to come see the show. We'll bring all the lifeguards <laughs> to come see the show. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I, it's called Sienna. It's the yeah. the name of who I was for that year, and um, I just wanted to like, yeah, it's a thing that I also want to do of tell my story in the form of like a show. It's kind of a one woman show, and it's meant to be funny, like because that's the point of like. I think we can get into the idea of like putting victims in a box and that yep. they're like sad people you have to feel sorry for forever. Yep. And the point of the story is it's about the year that I was so hopeful and was like, this is the year I'm going to get it right. I'm yep. going to be Sienna. Like yep, Conchetta's yep. in the bin. Sienna's yep. perfect and awesome. And I'm going to kiss boys. I'm going to get a yep. job. I'm going to like wear funky clothes. Like everything's going to be awesome, yep, right? Yep, I don't have a, a dad breathing down my neck anymore. Yep. And clearly you just like can't decide that your life is just going to be perfect and you're not going to go through the ups and downs that everyone goes through. And so it's sort of, I think, a quite like hopeful story about how a young person is dealing with all this stuff by not really dealing with it. And my therapist always says this thing to me, which I think is so amazing of like, I'm someone who, and this could be true of a lot of people of who didn't let domestic violence define them, but they define what domestic yep. violence is. And that's why it's about telling these unique stories and all that kind of stuff that we get to show what it is and yep. that you can laugh and cry and it's like tragic and it's all part of these things. So I just hope by doing this like show that's both funny and like real and sad, like it just keeps the conversation going in like a different way yep. or whatever. Well, that's like what I'm doing with the podcast. It's yeah. getting out there. Your story getting out there. There's so many people would would relate to this yeah. so so much. And do you think um, it, it helps you as well? But you're doing it's it's comedy, but telling your story mm. does that you think help you mentally as well? I think so, for sure. There's something I always think about this that for like 19 years of my life, I kept this like big giant secret. And sometimes I'm bad at keeping secrets, but I really managed to keep that one on lock. I didn't really tell a single soul. And that's just like such a funny thing to think about of just like what that's like, because it's like, it permeates everything. Like yeah. if someone's like, why aren't you coming over to my sleepover? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not really sort of like allowed kind of thing. And it's like, there's so many reasons going underneath yeah. things like this. And so I think in the years that coming out of it, it wasn't like I immediately switched on. And I was like, I know how to say what happened to me and know how to be funny about it. It's taken time. It's taken, I remember the first interview I did about it. I left feeling sick and feeling shame and feeling like I couldn't articulate what I meant and mm. all these horrible things. And my amazing like counselor was like, what you're feeling is normal. You don't have to know exactly how to articulate it. Yeah. It takes time. And of course it's going to bring up all this stuff that you went through. And so it's just, I don't know, taking time of knowing myself. And I, I, I think it just gets better and better in being like now coming to a place where I'm open about it and can share it because that is what ultimately helps people. Yeah. And that's with so many things like people coming out about the Me Too movement or everyone yeah. sharing these stories. The same with this podcast. I just think it's an incredibly freeing and helpful thing to do. That's the base of just say what happened to you and you have no idea how it will yeah. inspire people or help people. Yeah. And I think it's a great message to, to, for people to get out and start talking, even yeah. though it's hard to, to talk about it. Yeah. But like you said, you locked it away for so long. So long, So yeah. imagine if you still locked that away to today. Yeah. You know, it, 
how that just causes your mental health. It's yeah, just crazy. Totally. And so that's what I realized with Sienna of like that year. I also, even though I thought this will be the time I'm finally free and I was, I also was still holding a big secret. I didn't tell anyone that I've run away. I've sacrificed everything in my old life to be this like new person and I'm trying to form these friendships and live in this new place where I know literally no one, but I'm still holding, I'm just like buried still, everything that happened to me. And when, and this just happened recently, but when we left from Perth again, I didn't really tell people because it was saying goodbye again. And yeah. I felt like it had just been a year and I thought no one would really care. And it was like too much for me to handle. So I just left. I like had a new Facebook and a Instagram and Twitter. And I just like, didn't, they just stopped being active. Yeah. And then like literally a couple of weeks ago, I got an Instagram message from a girl that I used to know in Perth as Sienna when we like were in this like uni club together, which was just an excuse to get drunk and yeah, meet yeah. people. And she was the loveliest girl, her name was Carla. And she added me, she added my Conchetta like Instagram. And I was like, oh my God, hello. And she's like, I have thought about you for so long. And I said, let's Zoom. Yeah. And so we got to Zoom each other and it was mental. It's been like so many years and she's now like pregnant and like married. And I, and so she was like, can I ask like what happened? I always thought about you. And I told her the story, which filled in all the blanks for oh. her because she said, when I knew you, she was like, I thought you'd be someone who I'd see for the rest of my uni and then you just dropped off. Yeah. And she said this thing that I thought was really beautiful. She was like, I never thought you were being a bitch. I never thought you just stopped. She was like, I thought something has happened and it's not the right time yeah. for me to know. And it just like made me yeah, cry yeah, yeah. that I was like, I've left people there who just have no idea what they could think I had a coma. Like who knows yeah, yeah. what they thought happened to you me. Just so dropped off the end of the just world. Just dropped yeah, off yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. I dropped off my life for 20 years yeah, yeah. and then dropped off this other year. And it like has repercussions. And so to talk to her again and for her to understand what was going on for me, she was like, I remember feeling like you were a little bit cagey. Like your story wasn't, didn't know where, you didn't really talk about your family and I didn't want to push. And I just thought like that was so amazing yeah. to get to be like, wow, what's on the other side of what did it look like? So yeah, it's that's true. I held the secret for so long and now I don't want to anymore. Yeah. And also, like you said, it it truly like has an impact, I think, by just being open about it. Yeah. 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 So with the uh, the the coming up at the Bondi Festival, mm -hmm. tell uh, w w when's that on and, um, and dates, question. and if people want to go down. And, oh my god, good! Yeah. Um, it's a hundred million dollar ticket. Um, no, no, it's a, a July second and July third. Well, I'll be there, so that's a million dollars. <laughs> oh yeah, and then the photo of you and me—that's also another million dollars. We're gonna clear out. Um, yeah, it's two nights at Bondi Festival. July 2nd and 3rd, uh, yeah, I'd, and you can just go to the Bondi Festival yep. website to book tickets. And yeah, it's just this, the story of that show. It's still the beginning stages of me telling this story, but um, yeah, it's something I'm going to keep doing and finessing and and yeah, hopefully you come and you like it. No, I will. I'll definitely uh, come and have a have a look. Oh, and, you got to, you'll be in the story. Yeah. I will somehow <laughs> weave in that hoppers in the story and <laughs> might get you to come up and do improv yeah. to finish it, finish up. Yeah, that'd, that'd be good. That'd be good. <laughs> anyway, that's um, 
Mate, it's great, uh, Conchetta, to have you in and, and tell your story and it's great to open up as well and yeah. and, and get that out there. And, and I've seen you in action in, and you are a great comedian and very, very funny. So <laughs> thank I you. can um, I can back that up and uh, thank you so yeah, much. we'll uh, we'll all catch up down yeah, there. Yeah, we'll and, see each other in another ten years, we'll keep it going. <laughs> and I wanna thank you for hearing about the work you do for domestic violence and yeah. awareness and doing this pod. Like thank you. Like yeah. it does a lot and it means a lot and even for someone to not have gone through it, but to have that empathy, yeah. Yeah. that's something that's truly inspiring and yeah. like changes lives. So thank you. Nah, that's a pleasure. And uh, anyone that uh, on my Instagram, I've got a couple of videos about the, the domestic violence and talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so if anyone wants to have a look at that and uh, it'll uh, see where we're all going. And yeah. Yeah. Nah, but it's great having you in for a chat. Thanks, Robo. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks, Conchetta for sharing your story. Domestic violence is something we all need to be open about so we can stop this happening in future generations. Next up, Beach Banner with Whippet. G'day, Whippet. G'day, mate. How are we? Good. Just, um, you've been at the lifeguard now for a fair few years, so there must be a main influential moment that you dealt with over the years you can think of? Yeah, I think, you know, every season we come across so many big things that happen. But for me, the the biggest thing that's been a part of my career that I've never forgotten was my first recess, uh, the young Japanese guy, 23 years old. And, and we were actually down there doing a photo shoot with like six lifeguards sort of outside of work, and which was lucky because he had a lot of people there to be able to assist and work on him. But yeah, he dropped dead. 200 meters up the beach and we got a call and we ran up and that was my first experience of a major first aid let alone a recess and uh yeah i it definitely shocked me um i was very lucky that there was some very experienced people like yourself Corey adams um a few of the other boys that knew what they were doing because i kind of froze which i always still feel bad about is that i didn't know i kind of shit myself when i got there and i didn't probably do enough that day lucky he had a lot of other hands that were more capable on him but for me, that was the biggest learning curve I've had in, as, as a lifeguard. And yeah, to be a part of that, which was ended up being a successful recess and we went and visited him in hospital. And yeah, it was a very was sort of a life-changing moment in terms of how serious the job is for me and how also how good it feels when you get someone back. And it's something that you never want to experience, but I've been lucky enough to, you know, I've done about a dozen recesses now in my career down there and, and most of them have been successful. So yeah, it's a it's an amazing feeling bringing someone back to life, and I think for me that's probably the biggest influential moment of my lifeguarding career was was when that first one happened, and I learnt more out of that one than probably the other mm. you know ten or eleven that I've done, just because I learnt how to stay calm. Well, I didn't at the time, but looking back, it taught me what you boys did, and that was stay calm and work through the processes of how we're trained. And um, yeah, and if you do all that right, the, the chances of a good outcome are, are pretty high. Yeah, um, even to today, that one was probably one of the most perfect ones I've actually been involved with as well because everyone knew their role. Must have, um, must have been that radio talk I did, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Just communicating to the tower. Yeah, that yeah. was a perfect radio course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, nah, I, I would agree with you there. Like, you know, the experience in the hands that were doing the CPR, the compressions and the, the bag mask and defib and all that sort of stuff was second to none like yeah i i don't think you could get a better at that time mm. with the lifeguard service that we had i don't think you get a yeah. better group of guys working on him so 
yeah, he was a very lucky young guy and, you know, I was only – he was my age pretty much at the time, 22 or 23. Yeah. And, you know, to see him dead one minute, alive the next and then be able to go back and, you know, fix the problem in his, that he had a heart condition and, and then to be able to live a nice, healthy life and happy with his family and stuff again, it's a big, big moment, I guess. And, I mean, out of all the ones I've done, it's very rare you see him actually wake up and start talking again. Yeah. Whereas – he just woke up and even – I remember asking the question, do you know where you are? And he said, Bondi Beach. Yeah. So, as and you said, someone's dead in front of you five, six minutes ago. Yeah. It, it's a, That's the, probably the most surreal thing for me. Like, when someone's dead and, you, and you're doing compressions and you're doing going through the motions, you're not getting anything back. Mm. You're just doing it to keep them yeah. alive, yeah. even if they're still unconscious. You're still mm. keeping the blood pumping and all that. And, yeah, I've had – Sort of him and, and one other guy, Timmy Pearson, where, where they were, Timmy was dead for 20 minutes, yeah. 20, 30 minutes. And we kept working on him, working on him. And then out of nowhere, he just went <gasps> and took a big breath and yeah. looked at me. And I just remember looking straight into his eyes. And I've known Timmy for my whole life almost, yeah. you know, 30 years. And that was probably the most emotional one I've done. Mm. But, you know, the same as, you know, as we're going back to that first one, to hear them then say where they are. Mm. And be able to kind of talk to you and communicate to you is the weirdest feeling, and it's it's very surreal. Yeah. Well, tell us a bit about um, Tim Pe- Pearson's one because we do a lot of resources, a lot of rescues, but we don't always know the person. So just give us a feeling on you know when we do know someone, how tough that is. Yeah, I think the fact that we don't know ninety percent of our resources or at least our mm. patients that we rescue is a good thing. Yeah, we got a call, like we could see guys waving on the beach and I jumped in a buggy and drove down sort of to about second or third ramp and luckily for Timmy, he was surfing in a competition and he was on a wave and he said, I've spoken to him numerous times since and he uh, he said he just remembers being on the wave and then just blacking out and there was a couple of German guys that found him face down in the water. Lucky he'd caught the wave quite far away in so they pulled him in but he was dead and we started working on him and myself and Brad Mallion and I think Bacon was there and a few others that knew Tim quite well. So it was a really emotional kind of recess because on one hand you try and do your best to save someone but on the other hand you're thinking there's a chance I'm going to lose a mate here. So that was very um, – I remember screaming at him and calling his name out with Brad and that was a, a different feeling and that and I think that's – you know, we tried – in every recess, you're trying anything you can do to get them back. And 30 minutes or 25 minutes, mm. I remember that one went for. And, you know, we were exhausted, but we we're never going to give up. And next thing, he just opened his eyes and gasped for air and was like, and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Hang on, we're getting him back here. And we kept working. And speaking to him later, he said, I remember like, it was literally, you know, you know people say they see the light and it gets smaller and smaller. Yeah. His, he said his was the opposite. Right. And he saw like a light. And then it kind of opened up, opened up, and he said, and then the only thing I could recognize at the was like a your face, like a dinner plate sort right. of in the light. Yeah. And he said, and then he sort of said that he had a feeling like, I can't die in front of the boys, blah, blah. So that was good. And now he's back surfing. I see him all the time walking around, you know, the local area and surfing every week I see him. So it's a, that's probably, for me, the best, the most satisfying one I've done because you're still seeing the, the efforts of all the boys you know, 15 years later. And that's, yeah, about 15 years ago. So Yeah, ten yeah, be good 10 years, yeah. yeah. And I mean, and it's great. I see him wandering around as well. And you see him with his family and his kids and, you know, you think, well, they wouldn't have had that if yeah. it wasn't from for you guys doing what you did and getting back. Yeah, and I think for any lifeguard around the country or anywhere around the world that's done a resus and, and brought someone back, that's 
what you can take out of it. They're never going to be perfect, and but if you get someone back, you're giving a family someone mm. that they can they would have lost otherwise. So it's a moment to sort of reflect and cherish on on the fact that you've been able to give a family a lot a, yeah. a member back, and and now they can enjoy the rest mm. of their lives. Hundred percent. Thanks, Whippet, for uh, coming in and telling the story. No uh, worries, mate. Anytime. It's always great having Whippet in the Beach Shack. Up next, I answer letters from the fans. This letter's from Gary, and he's from Queensland. When did you first start using defibrillators at Bondi? Well, it goes back a long way. I remember the uh, these big orange boxes turned up one day, and we uh, got trained in, in defibrillators, and it was back in 1997. So it's going back a long time now that defibrillators came around but it's only really the last probably five years that a lot of places have taken off with defibrillators like golf courses um, rsl clubs bowling clubs so it's something that's only recently come in so people haven't realized that defibrillators have been around that long and really uh have helped us defibrillators a lot because prior to that we didn't have a big success rate um with resuscitation but since the defibs have come in We've uh, nearly got a 100% uh, success rate. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.